Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. number of the teeth that have decayed cavities in them. And that has happened because he's not eating enough fish or not getting enough milk. Say, you're a fine, big, strong fellow. How old are you? Why, you look as though you're a giant. My, my. Where'd you come from? Barbara. Well, that's the place. Did you get lots of fish when you were a little boy? Yeah. That's the stuff that makes good bodies. If everybody do that, the most universal disease in the world is the decay of the teeth. And unfortunately, we have not known the cause until we've gone to the primitive people to find how they prevent tooth decay. Our difficulty is that we are adding too much white flour and sugar and do not get enough of the foods that carry the minerals and vitamins. When the primitive people adopt the food of modern civilization, their teeth decay just as ours do. He first visited Switzerland to study whether greater nutrition could be obtained from foods produced at higher altitudes, such as in the Swiss Alpines. He discovered the isolated Lechenthal Valley, a community compelled by its very isolation to eat locally produced foods. Here he made physical examinations of teeth, recorded data, collected menus, and made photographs of the people. Samples of food and saliva were taken for later analysis in his laboratory. The children had well-formed teeth, good physiques, and an apparent immunity to disease and dental problems. They ate mainly dairy products, whole rye bread, and plant foods such as potatoes and cabbage. Meat was eaten sparingly, usually only once a week. In contrast, Swiss children living in modernized districts had widespread tooth decay, facial and dental arch deformities, and greater susceptibility to disease. Their diet, refined flour, a high intake of sweets, chocolate, sweetened fruits, and a reduced use of dairy products. On his next journey, Dr. Price visited the Outer Hebrides, located off the coast of Scotland. Here, he made similar studies among the Gaelic people who inhabit these isolated islands. These rather barren islands have very few trees and little fertility. The islands are often subjected to rough seas and blizzards from the North Atlantic. Most of the people are of early Scottish descent, possessing a physique that rivals that found almost any place in the world. Their teeth are of unusual perfection. The basic foods of these islanders are fish and oat products, such as oatmeal, whole grain breads, and shellfish. But when the islanders were exposed to the foods of commerce, it was a repetition of what had been found in Switzerland. Bad teeth and general physical degeneration was the result. For example, these two brothers lived under the same roof, but ate differently. The older ate primitive foods and was in excellent health. The younger had extensive tooth decay and a poor physique from eating the foods of commerce. In 1933, Dr. and Mrs. Price visited Alaska to study the Eskimos, one of the last examples of a Stone Age people. The areas they visited were isolated. Travel was often very difficult. Among the Eskimos, 
Dr. Price discovered examples of physical excellence and dental perfection seldom found anywhere else in the world. Living in isolated districts on native foods, they had uniformly broad dental arches and typical Eskimo facial patterns. Their general health was excellent. ate foods rich in minerals and vitamins, mainly caribou, kelp, berries, fresh fish, organs of large sea animals, and seal oil. When the Eskimos were exposed to the foods of commerce, there was a marked rise in dental decay and a change in facial and dental arch formation dental service was not readily available, and dental pain was often acute among these people. These Indians inhabited northern British Columbia and the Yukon Territory, an area inside the Rocky Mountain Range. isolated area had to be reached by water and over roads that often were almost impassable. Long ago, these Indians discovered that the white man got scurvy when forced to live for long periods of time in this area where fresh fruits and vegetables were often not available. To avoid this dreaded disease, the Indians ate the adrenal gland and organs of moose and caribou. This gave them the necessary vitamin C, the vitamin that prevents scurvy. Primitive groups of Indians consistently had well-formed facial and dental arches that represented the tribal pattern. But new generations exposed to the foods of commerce obtained at trading posts or through government agencies, showed marked changes in facial and dental arch forms. Extensive tooth decay was quite evident. By 1934, Dr. Price decided to study the various people who inhabit the many islands of the South Pacific. New Zealand was also included in his studies. Dr. and Mrs. Price lived with these people, collecting and studying data about their living conditions. Surprisingly, he found that people who ate the foods of the area, shell and scale fish, plant roots, and tropical fruits, had developed a very high immunity to dental decay. Also, they had well-formed faces and good dental arches. In their primitive state, less than 1% of their teeth were attacked by tooth decay. But as though echoing a warning from nature herself, the message was clear. Those who ate foods outside their natural diets had a rise in tooth decay of over 29%. In 1935, Dr. and Mrs. Price went on one of their longest trips, some 6,000 miles to study 30 different African tribal groups. These people lived in the Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, the Congo, and Tanganyika. Africa was a fertile area for studying primitive peoples, last of the large continents to be invaded and explored by civilized man. 
it had one of the largest native populations living under primitive conditions. The primitive Africans were healthy, robust people. They had good teeth and fine dental arches. Their overall physique was excellent. Diet, dairy products, fish, vegetables, and eggs of certain species. An important source of fat-soluble vitamin is the blood of steers. It is a basic food of the Maasai, people of outstanding physiques. For those who ignored tribal nutritional laws, characteristic types of deformity and tooth decay frequently developed. One of Dr. and Mrs. Price's last journeys was to Peru. Here, he compared modern Peruvian society with the ancient Incas. was done by examining more than 1,000 human skulls of the ancients. Dr. Price did not find one significant deformity of the dental arches. He also found examples of early brain surgery, evidence of the high degree of civilization of the ancients. Primitive Peruvian Indians, subsisting on natural foods indigenous to their country, were healthy and robust, with fine teeth and sturdy bodies. But those who ate the foods of commerce were degenerating and dying rapidly. This was another warning, another indication to obey nature's laws. Dr. Price discovered that with individuals undergoing a degenerative process, a chemical analysis of the food disclosed a marked reduction in the intake of some of the important vitamins and minerals. Even primitive societies share our blight when they eat our food. Dr. Price discovered a substance he called Activator X. It belongs in the fat-soluble group. He recognized that the fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and F had been deficient in practically every case of active tooth decay. He found that an essential characteristic of the successful dietary programs of primitive societies related to a liberal source of the fat-soluble activator group, such as is found in seafood, especially fish roe, bird's eggs, butter fat of mammals' milk, organs of animals, and insects. Even though the diets of primitive people differed greatly as to type and source, all diets provided a large increase in water-soluble vitamins over modern diets by at least a factor of four, and at least 10 times more of the fat-soluble vitamins and mineral activators than the displacing diets of commerce. Quality rather than quantity was the important factor. Since these foods were unrefined, they also supplied from two to eight times the minimum daily requirements of calcium and phosphorus, and up to 28 times that of magnesium. The entire treatment of food, from planting to preparation, was important. Dr. Price believed that changes in nutrition could occur with a change in agricultural methods, and that there was a direct relationship between poor quality foods and the depletion of the minerals in the soil. Primitive societies were aware of the relationship between what they ate and their own reproduction, so nutrition was carefully planned for expectant mothers. 
when the foods of commerce were substituted for their natural diet. There was evidence of abnormal facial patterns and susceptibility to certain diseases. This Maori family demonstrates the link between nutrition and birth deformities. The eldest child has a normal, well-formed body. After her birth, the parents moved to a plantation and began to eat the foods of commerce. Their second child has a depressed face and flat feet. The next child has club feet. The parents returned to a primitive diet, and later, two children were born without defects. Proper diet helped produce children without deformities, giving hope for all parents of the future. This is Sarah Pope, the Healthy Home Economist and chapter leader for the Weston A. Price Foundation. In the next few minutes, I'm going to talk with you about how what you eat determines your health, for better or for worse, but perhaps not in the way you might expect. Imagine a community of people where nearly every member was free of chronic disease, mental illness, and even dental decay. Children and adults alike were strong, sturdy, and attractive, with wide faces and perfect smiles, with plenty of room even for their wisdom teeth. Fertility came with ease, and robust, intelligent, and happy children were produced generation after generation. Sound like a utopia? This is the world discovered by Dr. Weston A. Price during the 1920s and 30s as he traveled across the globe. He discovered 14 isolated, traditional societies, still untouched by what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce. Dr. Price was a dentist and the first modern researcher to examine and write about the food choices and preparation habits of non-industrialized societies. In his pioneering work, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, he carefully noted the superior health these habits bestowed upon native populations. These population groups existed entirely on nutrient-dense local foods. While the diets of these peoples differed in specifics, they contained several common factors. First, the groups studied ate liberally of animal proteins and fats in the form of seafood, organ meats, and dairy products. Animal fats in particular were valued as absolutely essential to good health and were revered as sacred in bestowing easy fertility and healthy children to the parents that consumed them. These fat and cholesterol-rich animal foods supplied three very important vitamins in large amounts. True vitamin A, the animal form of vitamin D, and the animal form of vitamin K. These vitamins are critical to building healthy bone structure and to the prevention of disease, including tooth decay. The diets of these isolated cultures also all contained at least some animal and plant foods that were consumed in a raw state. These healthy natives stood in stark contrast to members of the same racial groups who had adopted the food products of the Industrial Revolution, canned foods, pasteurized milk, white sugar, and refined grains. In these natives, Dr. Price found rampant tooth decay infectious disease, degenerative illness, and infertility. The children of parents who had adopted modern foods into their homes before conception were born with narrowed faces and developed crooked teeth and other deformities of bone structure, as well as high susceptibility to all manner of medical problems. Even the robust health of children born to parents who consumed only their traditional diet during their growing years rapidly declined if those children chose a more modern diet upon reaching adulthood. The drastic difference in health between the natives consuming their traditional diets and those who adopted modern foodstuffs was due not only to food choice alone, however, 
traditional societies practice superior food preparation and storage techniques as well. Grains, milk products, and frequently even vegetables, fruits, and meats were fermented or pickled through a process called lacto-fermentation. Traditional fermentation techniques preserve foods so that they were available during the winter months and other times of food scarcity. These methods also enhanced nutrient availability and added health-promoting probiotic bacteria, which ensured sound digestive health and function. Isolated societies almost universally practiced the liberal incorporation of bone broths into their ethnic cuisines as well. Bone broths supply plentiful minerals in the form of electrolytes, which are very easy to assimilate. The gelatin in bone broths attracts digestive juices, making any cooked foods that are eaten with the same meal easier to digest. Bone broths are very supportive of healthy cartilage and digestive health. These wise preparation methods, which enhance nutrient value and digestibility, stand in sharp contrast to modern processing and preservation methods, which deaden and denature food, rendering it high in calories, yet low in nutrition. The dazzling allure of brightly colored boxes and packages in modern grocery stores beckon shoppers to fill up their pantries with convenient and fractionated foods. But this convenience comes with a heavy price, our health. Even listening to the dietary advice of most doctors, dietitians, researchers, and spokesmen for government and nonprofit agencies, such as the Food and Drug Administration, the American Heart Association, the National Institutes of Health, the American Cancer Society, and others, tends to confuse the issue for those who genuinely wish to leave processed foods behind and embrace a healthier diet. The approved guidelines of these diet dictocrats are visually depicted as a pyramid and now a food plate, which suggests that the healthiest diet is one based primarily on whole grains along with fruits and vegetables, even though no healthy traditional society studied by Dr. Price ever ate this way. This is politically correct nutrition, lopsided guidelines that do not distinguish between rancid and fresh whole fats, irradiated, pesticide-laden produce, and organic fruits and vegetables, pasteurized dairy coming from confinement cows eating genetically modified feed, and raw dairy from pastured animals grazing on grass, lean meats from penned animals eating antibiotic-laced feed, and those from range-fed, full-fat animals, and battery-produced and free-ranging eggs. Such empty nutritional advice has not in any way stemmed the ever-increasing tide of degenerative disease and in many ways has made the situation far worse with our children paying the heaviest price of all. Only with a return to the nourishing wisdom of our ancestors as discovered and documented by Dr. Price can we hope to reclaim the vibrant health that is our birthright. Traditional food choices and preparation techniques using modern technology as a generous benefactor, surely promise a golden age of health to all who heed its call. For more information on traditional diets, please refer to the website of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Today we're here with Sally Fallon, a nutritionist and founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to restoring nutrient-dense food to the American diet. She will discuss how to have a healthier, smarter, and happier baby through the foods that you eat during pregnancy. Thank you so much for being here. I know I want to talk about prenatal nutrition because most people don't realize how important that really is. I want to talk to you about, I guess, why, why is, what is the importance of eating well when you're pregnant or even before you're pregnant? Right. We treat pregnancy so casually, and then when things go wrong, I say we blame the three G's, germs, genes, and God, but uh, we never think about what the diet was like. And yet in traditional cultures, they had a whole program that started six months before conception of special foods for the parents to eat and then the mom to eat while she's pregnant and nursing and while the child is growing, because this is a time that the baby needs extra nutrition and the um, mom needs to prepare so that the moment she becomes pregnant, all that nutrition is available. 
So these cultures had what we call sacred foods or special pregnancy foods. And they were all the foods that we're told not to eat. Um, some cultures it was butter. Um, liver was you know, kind of universally a sacred food for pregnant women and also fish eggs, very nutrient dense seafood. So we do have a special pregnancy diet. We actually have a fridge magnet that you can uh, put on your refrigerator to remind you of the diet. And I can tell you that the babies born to the moms who've had the wisdom to prepare for pregnancy and eat this way during pregnancy, um, they are just gorgeous babies. Uh, birth is easy. Um, they nurse easily. Mom has lots of milk. And um, the babies are really strong, strong and healthy. So about all those women that think, oh, you know, I'm pregnant, so I can eat, you know, four pieces of cake because I'm eating for two. And why is that not the right way? Why is that? Why do you disagree with that, I guess? Okay. Well, the cake is just empty. There's nothing to nourish you in the cake. Mm -hmm. And it's what Dr. Price would call a displacing food of modern commerce. It is pushing out your appetite for the nutrient-dense foods. There's no nutrition in a piece of cake or in a cookie, <laughs> you know, or in... Uh, commercial French fries. And uh, so these definitely need to be out of your diet, but you shouldn't wait till pregnancy to start this. I mean, it, it takes a, a, quite a preparation period of eating the right way. And that means no processed foods, of course, just good. What, so, why do you, so you're saying that eating what you eat six months before you become pregnant is very important. Absolutely. And we've had a lot of moms who've really had a bad diet or they've been vegetarians or vegans. Mm -hmm. And we tell them to prepare for two years before they become pregnant. Two years. And most of them are really grateful that we told them that because they were worn out, depleted anyway. And uh, they, you need time to kind of build up your nutritional stores again. Is that the same for the, for the dads then too? With what they're eating? For the dad, yeah. the dad needs to do this too because the quality of his sperm is highly dependent on his diet and he needs to eat these nutrient-dense foods. By the way, one of the foods we highly recommend is eggs, especially the yolks, and they should be two egg yolks a day in these preconceptual diets, um, along with liver and raw milk and butter and all these good old-fashioned foods. Uh, yes, and then, well, you say the dad's not carrying the baby. That's true, but the dad needs to be healthy. And, uh, you know, once the baby's born, he'll be relied on to be healthy and calm and you know good-natured, all those things that this diet gives you. So tell me, if you're pregnant, what are the most important things that you should be eating? Well, you do need to eat some organ meats because they're the really nutrient-dense foods. And this is hard for some people. They have to get used to this. So that could be liverwurst, liver pate. Um, it could be learning to make meatloaf with a little bit of added liver so you don't even know you're eating it. Uh, but a scrapple is another really great mid-Atlantic food that's um, easy for people to eat. It's really delicious. So uh, we, we really, this is just of the utmost importance. Liver is the most nutrient-dense food there is. And it's very high in vitamin A, which is going to be critical for the development of the embryo. But how does the food that we're eating the impacting the unborn baby? I mean... In, in many ways. Uh, just reading an article about um, glyphosate in Roundup. Uh, impacts the unborn baby. Soy foods impact the unborn baby in very negative ways. So, you know, all of that needs to be gotten out of the diet. So what, in what way is that well, impact? Well, soy foods uh, disrupt hormonal development and even uh, behavior. Uh, um, in, the, uh, in the fetus exposed to just small amounts of the disrupting chemicals in soy um, shows um, alterations of behavior, a lot more stress in social situations, a lot more just staying alone. These are rats, of course, but they do see disruptions in their behavior. And behavior of the child after they're born. Exactly. Because exactly. it's a hormonal thing. Yes. So, yes. so now that you say that, so there's such, there's an, an exponential increase in, you know, um, spectrum disorders and ADHD. And do you think that has anything to do with the environmental impact on some of the food that we're eating? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We forget that the brain and our emotional biochemistry are all dependent on good nutrition. And one of the key things for brain nutrition is animal fats, like butter. Mm -hmm. uh, they contain something called arachidonic acid, which is essential for your brain to work, brain and nervous system, and also for the gut to work. 
And if these are not in the diet, um, there's going to be a real compromise in all of this. There are things that people think are really healthy or that they eat during pregnancy that maybe they're mistaken by or? Well, one of the things that people do that they think is healthy is to take protein powders, mm -hmm. you know, a whey powder or protein drink in the morning. Uh -huh. And we are concerned, uh, of course, you need good protein. You need good animal protein, but people are getting too much protein with these protein powders. Very hard on the kidneys, which are additionally stressed during pregnancy. But the key point about the protein is it depletes the body of vitamin A. And vitamin A is so essential for healthy growth of the fetus and the child. So that's one thing that we would definitely warn against. Any kind of soy food, which is full of estrogens, um, you know, all processed food, you know, all the vegetable oils, all the, you know, burgers and fast food and everything. I mean, this, you need to get used to this new diet before you become pregnant because by then it's too late. So you mentioned like the protein powder, but a lot of pregnant women are recommended to take supplements. What is your view on that? Typically when a woman gets pregnant, she goes to the doctor and he puts her on a prenatal. Uh -huh. And we're very concerned about these prenatals. Uh, for one thing, they don't have the right kind of vitamin A in them. They don't have a good balance of A and D. Um, a lot, of, they have um, folic acid in them when it really should be folate. Mm -hmm. So they can actually end up with a deficiency in, fol in folate. Uh, you know, a lot, they're just artificial vitamins. They're all made in China. There's no quality control. And we really think you should be getting your nutrients from food, from nutrient-dense food. So the vitamin A is, is one of the key, the key foods you're, you're saying, and that's through um, liver and organ meats, you're saying? Yes, and all the nutrients in animal fats. Then you do need some good dairy products for calcium and phosphorus. Your, your requirements are going to go way up. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's very hard to absorb these nutrients from pasteurized and ultra-pasteurized dairy products. And um, um, a lot of people are very allergic to these products, too. So we do recommend, at the very least, a lot of cheese, preferably raw cheese. And mm -hmm. raw cheese should be um, digestible for everybody. Mm -hmm. And if you can, we recommend the, the raw milk, you know, like a glass of raw milk every day. Every day. Yes. Um, lots of eggs. Lots of eggs are a brain food. So I know, I know you talk about where it's important to eat meat and, and people who are um, talk yeah. about the vegetarians. Why is that not an optimal um, diet well, for a pregnancy? This is going to sound really harsh, but I would not recommend that vegetarians have children. I would, either get off your vegetarian diet or just decide you're not going to have children because it's just not fair to this child, to bring it into the world so nutritionally depleted. There's so many nutrients that you're not getting in a vegetarian diet, especially a vegan diet. And uh, we hear, we hear about these cases. And in fact, there have been parents sent to jail for child abuse who are vegans, who are bringing their child up on a vegan diet. I just think it's a terrible thing. These vegetarian groups are telling parents that they can have a completely healthy baby on a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet. And it's um, a terrible falsehood. And of course, who suffers? It's the child. In what way that's Okay, so they're gonna be uh, de deficient in complete protein, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin K. They'll be deficient in B12, which is so critical to development of the nervous system, possibly B6, zinc, calcium, and possibly phosphorus, and iron. Um, and, uh, you know, iron, uh, deficiency anemia is another terrible thing to impose on a child. And so what, what are the implications for the child and if they're deficient in these things? Just brain development? Uh, they, the brain function's not going to be right. They'll have digestive disorders. They won't grow properly. They'll be very weak. They'll be way behind in their milestones. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll always be small and fragile. It's a very unfair thing to do to a child. Right, and that's, that goes in through the pregnancy diet because it's so important because that's how they're... Exactly, and that's when they need these nutrients. Uh, just, just take calcium. They need a source of absorbable calcium and all through the growth period in utero and then when they're born, even more so because that's when the bones really start to grow. And your bone density is determined when you're young, when you're a baby and when you're a toddler, and that's when you need the really good uh, calcium source. We talked about the fats and, and proteins, but are they all created equal? Because if you go and buy a meat at the store, there's lots of, you know, you want, obviously want to get a grass-fed, but not many people 
are aware of, uh, in most stores, I don't even sell 100% grass-fed meat. It always has some. So, so what do you think about that? Is it worse to eat like some meat that has lots of, you know, um, grains and, and different hormones or not eat meat at all? <laughs> I still would eat it. I mean, you still need meat or so you need animal foods. And right. so let's just say that you're a, you want to get pregnant, the shop the edges would be meat, eggs, um, fish if you can, shellfish, poultry, cheese. Um, that's what I would recommend. However, uh, at the Weston A. Price Foundation, we have a whole system for putting you in touch with local farms, joining food groups. Uh, there are farmers who deliver every two weeks to a drop-off point all these wonderful grass-fed foods, soy-free eggs, uh, raw milk, uh, good cheese. And that's what we recommend. <clears throat> we try to make it as easy as possible for prospective parents. Our big emphasis is on healthy pregnancy and having healthy children. And there are any statistics on people who have eaten maybe the Western Price? We did one a short study that showed very positive uh, for people who had uh, prepared for pregnancy using our diet, less tooth decay. Um, Fewer things like asthma, allergies, and so forth. And we're right now uh, taking part in a very large study, over a thousand uh, families. Well, we're looking to this in more depth, but the study that we have done just shows very positive um, results. And we also have uh, what we call our healthy baby gallery. We publish photographs every, every month uh, or every quarter of these healthy babies. That's great. What, what do you think is the most important thing for a new mom to know about their diet? And well, to continue this pregnancy diet. It needs to be a nutrient-dense diet. Mm -hmm. And I promise you all the trouble of going to find these foods, uh, preparing them, and it doesn't take a lot to prepare them, but uh, it will pay off in a lot more time for you in the end because your baby will be much easier, be less crying, that's one of the things we, we hear, that our, my baby doesn't cry much. Very healthy and cheerful and sleeps well. The happier so and smarter. So you don't have this frenetic uh, couple of years with a really unhealthy baby. The, so yeah, so, so that you're saying that the babies who are eating, the, the parents who have the, the diet overall are showing that the babies are happier, they sleep better, yes. cognitively yes. they're performing better. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I've heard from dentists is in the babies of uh, vegetarians, even vegetarians who are fully breastfeeding their babies, that the baby teeth have come in rotten. Their teeth rotten. are rotten. All, all the baby teeth, yeah. Oh wow. So we don't, we don't, we definitely don't hear that the teeth come in nice and white and strong. Right. That's great. Well, um, where can people go for more information on um, the diet? Uh, go to westonaprice.org. That's a man's name, W-E-S-T-O-N-A-P-R-I-C-E.org. And under health topics, we have a topic uh, category called children's health. And we have lots of articles there um, to help you. We also have a special issue of our journal called Children's Health, which is, um, we just actually reprinted it. And that's the nice thing to to start with. It's a vast, it's a vast subject. subject. But I, I, ha I do have a book called The Nourishing Traditions Book of Baby and Child Care, and that would be a, a, another good place to start. Voices of Opposition Like any great truth-teller, Dr. Price had his share of opposition and negative reviews. Here are a few and our rebuttal to them. Dr. Price was not a scientist. His work was superficial or simplistic. Dr. Price's methodology while on his travels was the epitome of the scientific method. He had a hypothesis, actually more than one if you count looking for a vegetarian society. He examined the natural world, teeth, height, weight, collected samples, food, saliva, blood, and tested them, and then he drew conclusions. Much of his work was published in peer-reviewed journals of his day. The Eskimos have one of the highest rates of osteoporosis in the world. This directly conflicts with Dr. Price's claims. 
Many of the Eskimos that have been studied are along the routes of commerce that have made it easy to replace traditional foods with modern foods like white flour and sugar. Also, not every primitive society followed the nutritional principles that Dr. Price discovered. If any primitive group did not have access to or follow the basic principle of consuming fat-soluble vitamins, that society would not have strong bones or teeth. This could have happened because a drought, changed migration habits of caribou or seafood was no longer available, and people turned to farming and away from eating fish or eggs. Plenty of societies have gone extinct because of poor nutrition. That was his lesson. Dr. Price was anti-vegetarian. Dr. Price actually tried very hard to find a primitive culture that existed solely on plants and had strong genetic expression. He was unable to find even one. This is a loud argument in today's world where many mistakenly attribute vegetarian and vegan lifestyles with health, environmentalism, and even spirituality. Dr. Price did not live in such a time. He just studied the data and concluded that no populations were found that thrived on a vegetal diet alone, and certainly not on a vegan diet. While extolling the health of primitive people, Dr. Price ignored their short life expectancy and high rates of infant mortality, endemic diseases, and malnutrition. Dr. Price extolled the health of those groups who were healthy and described the high rates of infant mortality, endemic diseases, and malnutrition in the groups that were not healthy. Much of the value of his research comes from the fact that he was able to observe healthy and unhealthy groups of the same racial stock side by side and therefore demonstrate the correlation between diet and disease. The health decline that Dr. Price observed was due to exposure to unfamiliar germs to which they were not resistant. Dr. Price was amazed to find that the primitive African tribes he studied were resistant to the infectious diseases associated with Africa. By contrast, the whites on their devitalized diet suffered greatly from these diseases. Even though exposed to TB, Swiss villagers and Gaelic seafaring peoples were completely immune as long as they consumed their native diet. Infectious disease did indeed prod much suffering among non-industrialized peoples as soon as they abandoned their traditional diet. The same dearth of nutrients that made them susceptible to these diseases also made them susceptible to tooth decay and a change in skeletal structure of the next generation. Dr. Price ascribed to the now-defunct theory of focal infarction. Dr. Price did indeed publish articles about how dental infections lead to infections that travel along blood, lymph, neural, and meridian pathways to other parts of the body. He believed that the pathogenic bacteria generated in these sites, typically streptococci, can travel to bacteria-laden distributed fields, which may include the heart, rheumatic fever and mitral valve prolapse, joints, rheumatoid arthritis, kidneys, glomerulomyositis and chronic kidney and bladder dysfunction, and brain, memory loss, and obsessive-compulsive disorder symptoms. Doctors who not, do not perform a thorough physical exam, which should include the teeth, and who are unfamiliar with focal infections typically only treat the symptoms. Thus, they may prescribe non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for arthritis or medications for cardiac arrhythmias while missing the true cause of the patient's condition or disease. The conventional dental community has tried for years to discredit this theory that has many respected advocates and is strongly supported in Europe and England. So let's uh, define what we mean by real milk. We mean milk that is full fat, that is pasture-fed, from cows on pasture, and that is unprocessed. It's not pasteurized, it's not homogenized. The pasteurization of milk has been an absolutely tragic mistake that we're only beginning to realize uh, the damage it's done, not only to people, but to farms and to our whole uh, culture and economy. Consumption of pasteurized milk is associated with allergies, asthma, frequent ear infections, digestive problems, and then diabetes, autoimmune disorder, attention deficit disorder, constipation. During the period of rapid population growth, 
The market for fluid pasteurized milk has declined at 1% to 3% per year over the past 30 years because more and more people simply cannot tolerate pasteurized and ultra-pasteurized milk. It makes our children sick. Far from being inherently dangerous, raw milk is uniquely safe, um, safer than any other food. So let's reason together here. Consider the calf born in the muck, which suckles on its mother's manure-covered teat. How can that calf possibly survive with such an unsanitary system? How is it that any mammal has survived with a system like this? Surely nature has made some mistakes, and we, mankind, are going to fix these mistakes by pasteurizing the milk. That's basically the attitude. Well, the reason that mammals have survived is because raw milk is an amazing substance. It contains multiple redundant systems of bioactive components that can reduce or eliminate pathogens and uh, populations of pathogenic bacteria. So let's go through some of these components of, of raw milk. Uh, there's an enzyme system, the framework of which is two enzymes, lactoperoxidase and lactoferrin. So we'll start with those. Lactoperoxidase is an enzyme in raw milk that uses hydrogen peroxide, which is produced by another enzyme in the milk, like a heat-seeking missile, and uh, uses hydrogen peroxide and free radicals to seek out and destroy pathogens. It's really like a missile. And it only destroys the bad ones. It doesn't destroy the good ones. Lactoperoxidase is in all mammalian secretions. It's in breast milk, it's in tears, it's in saliva. This is why it's actually very wise when you cut yourself to lick your finger, because you're putting lactoperoxidase in there, which is antimicrobial. Lactoperoxidase is higher in animal milk. Well, it's 10 times higher in goat milk than breast milk because animals are dirtier than humans. Nature has got this all figured out. And some countries are using lactoperoxidase as an alternative to pasteurization to ensure the safety of commercial milk. It's very accurate to call raw milk white blood. It contains everything that blood contains except for red blood cells. So leukocytes, B lymphocytes, macrophages, neutrophils, immunoglobulins, antibodies, they're all there in raw milk. And basically what raw milk does is create the immune system in the infant. One of the things our government says is people who are immune compromised should never touch raw milk. But Raw milk is the perfect food for the people who are immune compromised because it will put their immune system back in order. Special fats and carbohydrates, one of these is oligosaccharides. Now, when scientists discovered oligosaccharides in milk, they said, here's another mistake that nature made because humans cannot digest oligosaccharides. But it turns out that oligosaccharides are the perfect food for beneficial flora in the gut. It feeds your good gut flora. So there was a very good reason for oligosaccharides to be there. Medium chain fatty acids, uh, the type that we have in coconut oil, um, go after the bad bacteria. They kill the bad bacteria, but not the good bacteria. And special fats, phospholipids and sphingolipids, uh, these bind to the lining of your gut and um, kind of like a a guard uh, protects from the absorption of pathogens. So we have a five-fold protective system that destroys pathogens in the milk, stimulates the immune system, builds a healthy gut wall, just what our babies need, prevents absorption of pathogens and toxins in the gut, and ensures the assimilation of all the nutrients. It's really an amazing food. Regenerative agriculture is a set of farming practices that increase biodiversity in soil organic matter. Currently, most agricultural practices are devastating to biodiversity. Even organic agriculture, while not as bad, still does more harm than good. Regenerative agriculture is a way to reverse this trend to actually make a positive impact on the land. So what does regenerative agriculture actually involve? Answering this question is actually pretty tricky, because the practices that work best largely depend on the land that's being worked with. So the variety of different practices border on infinity, a bit more than this video can cover.
However, let's look at three common forms that regenerative agriculture can take. The soil is full of organisms, which are helpful for plants. Some convert soil nitrogen into a plant-usable form. Some bring water to the plants that would otherwise be out of reach. Others loosen and aerate the soil, increasing water absorption and allowing plant roots to penetrate deeper. When soil is turned over by a machine, most of these organisms are killed, so the crops must rely on chemical fertilizer, which ends up leaching into the water. Central to no-till farming is to not do that. Instead of tilling, plant cover crops whose roots break up the soil. Let the worms aerate the soil and bring down nutrients. Keep the soil covered with an organic mulch, which will break down over time, adding more organic matter to the soil. From the release of methane to clearing forests for pasture land, cattle raising is known for being very environmentally destructive. But this is not inherent to grazing animals. If the right practices are put in place, enormous amounts of carbon can be sequestered into the ground, soil can be built, and even desertification can be reversed in a matter of years. Here's how it works. The growth of grass tends to start slow, accelerate, and slow down again. This middle area is where it accrues the most biomass the most efficiently. If it's eaten before it gets to this point, its growth will never speed up. This is what happens with traditional pastured animals. They eat all the grass, which doesn't have the chance to grow back fast enough before getting eaten again, and we have overgrazing. This leads to soil erosion, drought, and desertification. But if the animals are kept in a tightly packed herd, like they used to be in nature, the grass has time to grow before being eaten. All that biomass in the grass is carbon that comes from the air. Not all of the grass gets eaten, however. Some of it gets pooped on and trampled, which ends up creating the perfect conditions for new topsoil to be built. This ends up happening incredibly quickly. This is one of the most complex and location-dependent practices there are. I will therefore be overgeneralizing a bit. It always starts with observing a local forest and the relationships between everything in it. The plants, the animals, the fungi, the landscape, the soil, the water. And then recreating these relationships in a way that's just as ecologically resilient, but produces more food. Food forests are often thought of as comprising seven layers. The root layer, the ground cover layer, the herb layer, the shrub layer, the low tree layer, the high tree layer, and the vine layer. Every one of these layers either produces some sort of food or medicine, or is in some way helpful to the system as a whole. The plants are mostly perennials and include as many native species as possible. These three examples of regenerative agriculture, plus all the rest of them, all have something in common. Whereas in conventional agriculture, you seek to create as many of one thing as possible, in regenerative agriculture, you seek to create as many relationships between things as possible. You are one of those things. What sort of relationship with the land do you want to foster? Current estimates hold the population will reach 9 billion by 2038. One of the major problems we face is feeding everyone. Diseases are at an all-time high. The current model for food production is unhealthy and unsustainable. There's got to be a better way. Scientists say that if 14% of the world planted a permaculture garden or some type of garden just in their backyard, we can replenish the entire earth. So we're setting out to find people who are doing things differently. We'll be looking into alternatives to current food practices that are damaging our health and environment. We'll be meeting the chefs, farmers, restaurateurs, and entrepreneurs who are making a difference. And you'll find out just how easy it is for you to become a part of the solution. And we'll be eating the freshest food, meeting amazing people, and seeing what we can do to become a healthier, more environmentally friendly world right here on the Fork and Truth. So where does our food even come from? Well, more than likely it comes from a factory farm or a CAFO a concentrated animal feeding operation, CAFOs weren't even in existence until the end of the 20th century. They were built to produce more food on less land for a lower cost. Then they shipped their products halfway across the United States and sometimes to different parts of the world to be processed and packaged before it even makes it to your local grocery store. 
I mean, think about all the fossil fuels that are wasted in that process. Plus, CAFOs are one of the world's biggest air pollutants by their release of ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, and methane. They give the animals antibiotics, and to top it all off, pump them full of hormones so that they can grow faster and become those juicy, plump chicken breasts or steaks that consumers have come to expect. These methods are damaging us and our environment. So is there a better way? Well, stick around, because on this episode, we're exploring a place that just may have the answers. Today, we're here at Black Cat Farm, run by Chef Eric Skoke and his wife, Jill, and their family. It's a 500-acre farm that houses sheep, pigs, 250 different heirloom and heritage-type produce, and much, much more. Come with me. Let's explore this farm. I've always had a passion for cooking. My mom is a spectacular cook. My grandmothers, both of them, were really spectacular cooks as well. I worked in restaurants, and I loved the chaos and the speed and the, the intensity of it. And you know what? I love to eat. Put all those things together, you know, so I realized that was going to be a calling for me. So what are we heading to? We're harvesting beets for the farmer's market, and the restaurant needs beets as well. I found this old heirloom seed called Three Root Grex, totally obscure. So this variety, there'll be some that are hot pink, some that are golden, there'll be some that are light pale pink. So every beet that you pull up, it's kind of like a surprise. So what do we have here? Summer squash. We grow nine varieties. And this is a patty pan right here. So it's a scallop-shaped squash. The flower is edible, as well as the squash, so we'll try and keep the flower attached. You'll notice some flowers have a short stalk and some have a long stalk. The long stalk ones are male flowers. These are the ideal ones for stuffing with fresh cheese or a shrimp mousse. Or... Can I try it? Yeah, please do. It's all good. Yeah, they're great. So tell us a little bit about your model. Do you incorporate permaculture? Yeah, we do. You know, philosophically, a sustainable permaculture model is really the holy grail. We've tried to grab onto the essence of permaculture, all the techniques that are really applicable, and build that into a model that has a really substantial yield, works well for the restaurant, kind of balances all the things together. You know, and part of that is integrating, just like they did 100 years ago, integrating animals uh, into the vegetable operation. Not at the same time but the animals are in a field, and then the next year it's vegetables, and then you switch back and forth and back and forth. So this is gonna end up next season somewhere else? Yeah, this will be on the other side of the farm. We've kind of split the farm, it's like a mirror image. In year one, it's this. In year two, this will be over there, and then there'll be pigs here. Uh, to the soil and to... Exactly. So when we're done with a field, we put up a temporary electric fence. And we let all of our hogs in. And hogs are grazing animals. They'll go through and they'll eat down all the plants that are left over. Right now they're in a field of peas on the other side of the farm. They love the weeds. They go nuts for weeds. They flip the soil over. They go after the eggs of the bugs that were left there. So they're actually part of our pest control. And of course, they're manuring the soil at the same time. So they're building up soil fertility while they live there. So they take care of all the, all the work for you then? Yep, they do it. They do the work. And that's a tremendous agriculture model. It is how farms operated up until about 30 or 40 years ago. And you don't use any chemicals or? No chemicals. We use speed and dexterity and lots of planning to stay one or two steps ahead of the insects. You know, if you grow the same plant in the same place a couple years in a row, the insects will start to build up over time and pretty soon they're just everywhere and you can't get rid of them unless you resort to chemicals. Definitely a family operation here at Black Hat. And what are we doing today, Kelsey? We've cut the hay about three days ago, and now we're creating windrows so we can run a baler over it and create hay bales. Middle, second, third up, down. I feel like Kevin Bacon in Footloose. Holy moly! Perfect.
sheep eating 100% grass-fed, or do you guys finish off with grain, or how, how do you go about that? We stay grass-fed the whole time. When you really push sheep by giving them a lot of grain, a lot of alfalfa, which makes growth happen really fast, the flavor just really deteriorates. All the really strong-tasting lamb that no one likes, that's usually how that's produced, and ultimately for us, it's all about flavor, and flavor takes time. You guys do CSAs. Can you tell us what a CSA yep. is? CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. It's a subscription where the customer would purchase a share of the produce at the beginning of the year. Essentially, it's an interest-free loan for the farmer. The farmer gets to use that capital to start the farm going and have some revenue before the tomatoes themselves are ready. And in exchange, there's a great relationship you know, and ultimately a discount on the tomato price. Our goal is to have not the most food and not the most profitable food, but have the right amount of the best food every day, year round, for the customers in the restaurant, for the CSA customers, our customers at the farmer's market. So instead of pack all the animals on and try and make a nickel, right. uh, it's really get everything to work in balance. Whatever the land is telling us to do, we're going in that direction with it instead of fighting against it. And of course, it's not just happenstance. It's meticulous planning, forecasting, and testing, and then a lot of hard work. salad. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how it is done at Black Cat Farm. <clears throat> so good. Okay, Chip, thanks for the goods. All right, we'll see you in the morning at I'll the market. I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. I'm going to get these over to Black Cat Bistro. Great, thank you. You're welcome. small family restaurant with a big farm and a broad vision. We want to cook really simple food for the guests in the dining room and we want the dining room to be as close as possible to the farm. And so we harvest every single day. We cook simple delicious food and then hopefully everyone leaves happy. Brought you some ingredients from the farm. So the first step will be to hollow out summer squash and I'm choosing tennis ball size pieces that are roasting really well. Make a nice scoop it comes just like that. So this is Moroccan lamb sausage. So it's our lamb. We do the butchery here in the restaurant. We grind it and add lots and lots of spices, tons of garlic. I'll stuff it inside our summer squashes. For an entree, we'll do three of them. It might be lamb sausage. It might be ratatouille. There's tons and tons of ways that you can use them. So the next step is fill these squash blossoms with our farmer's cheese mousse. So when we put these into the oven to bake them, when they're just warm, they're ready. So it's really just a couple minutes. This looks absolutely amazing. Why don't you tell me what we have going on here? All right, sourdough toast with apple butter, toasted almonds, and lemon basil. Then uh, deviled eggs. I grew up eating these. My grandmother was uh, famous for deviled eggs. This is her recipe. I can't take credit for it. Roasted carrots with a pistachio sauce. Then a pad thai, rice noodles, and a collection of everything that we're harvesting at the farm right now. Uh, tot soy on top and lime spicy and delicious, really great. What yeah, are you gonna go good. for first? Oh, I love the carrots. Carrots? Yeah, I'm a carrot fanatic. What made you start growing food yourself? As I was building out the restaurant, I had been gardening, and I was growing peas, and when you're standing in the garden and you open up a shelling pea, and you eat them fresh when they're small and sweet and delicious, it's like magic inside of a little pea pot. I mean, they're really spectacular. And I remember thinking, if I could get every customer from the restaurant into the garden to eat the peas with me and taste that magic that my life as a chef would be so easy. So I harvested a bunch of peas and I brought them into the restaurant and you know restaurants are chaotic and I didn't cook them that night and I didn't cook them the next night. Several days later I found them again deep in the refrigerator and I decided to cook them and when I did there wasn't any magic left. They were just peas. And I realized that the time between harvest and plate, that was the critical element in making all the food sing. So I knew that if I could get the vegetables out of the fields and race them into the restaurant, get them onto the plate, and do it simply, 
that the magic would still be there. Everybody needs magic in their lives. So this is the stuffed squash that we prepared in the kitchen earlier? Yeah, that's right. That squash blossom is awesome. Wow. Nice subtle lamb flavor. And the ingredients truly speak for themselves. You can really taste the lamb. You can really taste that fresh squash. There are not a lot of tricks that are happening. Just simple techniques done really well. It's working. Farmers Market. The market began in 1987 and today houses more than 150 participants. Everything from fresh produce, honey, mushrooms, bread, coffee, fresh flowers, literally everything you need. Eric jumps from the restaurant to the farm to the farmers market to make sure you're getting the healthiest, freshest food. It's pretty impressive. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, you can leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care, my friend. <laughs>